When I was a kid, I was really interested in miniatures and small things. The better they were, the better. If it could fool your eye and make you feel like you were a giant in this little world, that was really fascinating to me. I love storybook land at Disneyland. I know not a lot of my friends do, but I just think that is you know, one of the most amazing places. When I was a kid, I made miniatures. I was really interested in making tiny food, uh, little, you know, I think my mom had a recipe for this dough that you could make out of glycerin and white bread and, uh, you know, I forget what was all in it, but it was like this weird stuff that you could actually bake it in the oven and it would look like a real loaf of bread. It would brown very naturally, but very tiny. And so I would work, you know, for a whole day on one little donut or something and then want my mom to fire up the entire oven in the house just to cook this thing that was smaller than a Cheerios. You know, it was crazy. But uh, when I met Jody, I was shocked to find out that he was the same way. His grandmother owned a miniature shop in Southern California in the 70s. And he would just hang out there at summertime and help her make stuff, make miniature furniture, all this kind of stuff. And and they would sell it in the... um, in the store. So it's kind of amazing that we both had that really odd background. Welcome to Hello Atelier. I'm your host, Betsy Blodgett, and joining me to celebrate this first episode of season three is Jonathan Getz. Hello there. By meeting with this week's guest, designer Kevin Kidney, we continued our trend of turning vacations into podcasting opportunities. We had a two-day stopover in Los Angeles as an overture to a family vacation. Now, one of those days, my birthday, was set for Disneyland, and that got me thinking about how great it would be to chat with Kevin, who lives near the park. And let's be honest, the less time we spend out in the Venice Beach sun, the better for our fair Midwestern complexions. But I understand that chatting with Kevin was a great opportunity for you. You've been talking about his work for years. I discovered Kevin when Disneyland was celebrating its 50th anniversary. The company had released a ton of vintage Disney-inspired merchandise, all of which I'd lusted after. My favorite piece, though, was a ceramic reproduction of a 1950s Disneyland popcorn box. I snagged it and discovered that the designers behind it were Kevin Kidney and Jody Daly. Though I'm not a Disney aficionado like yourself, I'm certainly a fan of the team's mid-century aesthetics, so I was fairly excited to see their space as well. When we arrived at Kevin's house, a historic Victorian surrounded by California bungalows in the heart of Anaheim, he gave us a tour of the two-story barn in the back that he uses as a studio with his partner and husband, Jody Daly. It was filled with books, artwork, and samples of their Disney merchandise. But as interesting as it was, we skedaddled out of there because Southern California was in the middle of a heat wave, and the barn, like much of Los Angeles, was not air-conditioned. It was really hot. As disappointed as I was to have to leave the creative energy of that barn, the dining room had a great air-conditioned vibe as well. We were surrounded by tiki masks, statues, and other ephemera he and Jody had collected over the years. There was even a copy of the original music for the Swiss Family Robinson Swisska Polka, which you've heard if you've ever walked through the treehouse at one of the parks. I think it might be fair to say at this point in conversation that I'm a big Disney fan. Obviously. Anyway, I've been a fan of Kevin's work, both Disney and non-Disney related, for years now, so it was a thrill for me to sit down with him and discuss his career. I probably got interested in Disney when 
we went to Disneyland when I was a little kid. You know, I wanted to live there. I thought that people who worked there lived there. And um, so I had it all picked out. I was going to live in the Swiss family treehouse someday. And uh, uh, I, I just thought it was, that was where I needed to be. Um, even though I was born in Anaheim, I don't really have a lot of memories of, of that time. I, uh, I was just a baby. My, my mom and dad had an apartment right, right near the park, so they could look out their balcony and see the fireworks at night. And uh, so maybe that had something to do with it. But we would come out every year or two and visit my grandparents who lived here in Anaheim uh, and have Christmas with them and go to Disneyland and maybe go to the beach and all that. So I always just equated Disneyland, Christmas, grandma, all the greatest, happiest things with, uh, with you know, Anaheim. So I, want, I just wanted to be here. You know, I grew up in Phoenix and uh, was an Arizona kid all the way through college, but moved back to California uh, as a young guy uh, right out of college, or actually still in college, uh, to work at Disneyland. So I um, drove Jungle Cruise boats and uh, operated the Enchanted Tiki Room and uh, things like that for a couple of summers. It was great. For me, it wasn't just a job. I knew that I wanted to work for Disney. I was really, really... um, obsessed with it and I think I've met a lot of young people even today who are the same way Um, you know you can just tell you know they're those they're like they're so intently into it and not only just you know oh I just want to ride the rides and blah 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 they they want to know who designed them they want to know the behind the scenes they want to know you know how do those effects in the Haunted Mansion work how does a animatronic tiki bird work and so I uh, spent a lot of my time uh, when I wasn't driving guests around the Jungle Cruise, I was actually hanging out with kind of the the sound department guys and the animation guys who would come in after hours and uh, fix stuff. Or even during you know during the day, they'd be down in the basement underneath the tiki room, and I'd I'd slip down there and watch them work. Kevin didn't stay in the tiki room for long. After graduating college, he joined the company as an artist, and only two years later became head of the model department. Kevin had a hand in designing everything from the smallest enamel collector's pin, to parades, to a 40-foot fire-breathing dragon. Not only did he find his dream job, but he also found himself surrounded by other incredibly talented, like-minded designers, including one in particular. Jody Daly and I started working together back in the 90s, working on projects together for Disney. I, he was a great designer, I was doing models, and so if we were working on a show for Disneyland, sometimes I would be making models for his projects, or, and, and then we would collaborate, we'd actually get assignments just handed to just the two of us where we get to work on stuff. And we started our, uh, when we were coming up with a name for our company, it's, it's kind of a funny story, you know, a friend uh, was sort of joking that every time we get involved with something because we're so obsessive and we do so much it's like everything you know every time they come on and do a project it's the kevin and jody show you know (laughs) it's always the kevin and jody show and so that just became the name of our our company uh we started our company about 10 years ago 11 years ago 
um, after we left Disney and we started doing our own thing, but Disney's still our biggest client. They, they come to us constantly for, for projects. So it's almost like we haven't really left Disney. We're still working there, but we're our own bosses. So a lot, there's not a lot of pressure. It's not very corporate. It's kind of the best. It's kind of perfect, really. You know, we get to work, we get to work on cool stuff, but we don't have to stress <laughs> too much um, over office politics or whatever because we can escape it. Even if I'm working on my own things, I'm constantly showing them to him. Like if I'm working on, say, that an animated uh, series and I'm doing character designs, I'll be bringing them in to show him constantly. What do you think of this? Do you like this? And same thing with him. You know, if he's designing a parade float or a poster or something, he'll he'll show me. Uh, so even though I'm not working with him on something, I really am working with him. I need. I really want his feedback. So, yeah, I don't know that I could actually do the same job that I do entirely on my own without uh, that extra pair of eyes to say, no, that's rotten, <laughs> you know, <laughs> those, those colors are ugly. Jody and I are probably known a lot for nostalgic stuff, old, the old classics. Um, and I think it's just because that's really what we're most interested in. We grew up with all these wonderful films and attractions, these books and illustrations and designs and, and music and everything done by these, these incredibly talented people who a lot of them, even when we were young guys starting out at Disney, um, you know, many of them are still alive today, but there were even more alive then. And we were able to meet a lot of them, become friends with them. So it was really fun to uh, actually hang out with say a designer you know like Rolly Crump and learn from them you know get to show them what you're doing and then get their feedback I was really close friends with a, a model builder who worked at Disney Studios in the 1930s through the 1940s uh, his name was Bob Jones and he um, did all the maquettes for Pinocchio and uh, Dumbo and Fantasia and uh, worked uh, with Wa Chang and other artists on uh, Bambi. He was, I think, in his 70s, 80s when I became friends with him. And uh, I would, he, he lived here in Orange County. I would just drive over to his house and have dinner with he and his wife. And he'd want to know all the stuff I worked on. And I would be very fascinated with all the stuff he had done. And it was really fun. I just felt like we were two we were two people who, even though we had a huge age difference, we were kind of on the same level. If we had just been born at the same time, we would just be best friends, you know? It was just it's kind of a drag that this person was at another part of his life than I was. But it was great inspiration and, and great motivation to have a friend like that who was sort of cheering you on and, and just really genuinely interested. In May 2011, a new parade rolled down the streets of Disneyland called Soundsational. This parade looked a little different than your classic Disney parade. The colors were softer and the floats more delicate. In fact, they almost looked as if they were made with paper. This new aesthetic for the parade was pitched by Kevin and Jody based on Kevin's artwork using intricate paper sculpture. And if you happen to be at the park for that first rollout, you might have noticed one chimney sweep dancing behind the lacy rail of the Mary Poppins float, who bore a remarkable resemblance to one Kevin Kidney. I got into paper sculpting thanks to 
a teacher that I had in high school in theater class, in drama. I was, um, I was really interested in scenic design and building sets for plays. And um, her name is Marie Kerwin. She's absolutely a wonderful lady. And she uh, showed me how to score paper with an X-Acto knife. Uh, I was using Bristol board and I was able to actually, without cutting all the way through the paper, just score it so that you could make a nice clean fold and do the walls of a, of a set that way. Um, and th- those kinds of little tricks that she taught me was kind of what got me into that. Plus, paper sculpture is very cheap. You know, you don't need a lot of money, <laughs> a lot of materials. It's very lightweight. If you mess up, it's, it's a very inexpensive mistake. <laughs> you know, you just throw it away. Nobody has to know. Start over. Um, and uh, so I just started making. I think it's just very fast. So when I started working at Disney, if I needed to put together a model of something just to show scale or to show volume or uh, you know its relationship to some other set piece or a person or what a performer or whatever, um, I would just mock it up in paper. Technology is great, and I have both Jody and I have. Uh, a lot of skills. I think about 60 to 70% of all the work that we do now is digital. It's, it's with the computers. It's, it's all work in the computer. But we do have these great old-fashioned skills. If we need to sculpt something with clay or paint something with paint, we can do that. We know how to build things. We know how to make stuff. We just have a lot of years of, of that, that hands-on approach. And it's been a great advantage to, to us. Um, right now, even though people are still doing things digitally, it, there's a great trend to make things look organic and handmade and uh, old-fashioned. And so we get a lot of jobs like that. They need somebody who can, who can do, create something digitally or uh, create something for the digital world, but, but something that looks handmade and organic. All the television commercials that I've worked on they have come to me because of my paper sculpture. They have a whole team of computer digital artists who can put this all together and edit it, but they need the elements to work with that are literally made by hand. They want to see the fibers in the paper. They want to see those little flaws that clue you into this is this was created by hand. I'm looking at just objects coming to life. You know, it's it's fun when that when when you can make something that's ordinary like a piece of paper come to life and be very entertaining and tell a story or whatever so uh, I've had a lot of fun when I've worked on these projects because I usually work uh, if I'm not working here in our studio I'll go out and work in their studio and a lot of their artists will step away from their computers and come over to my little station where I'm there with my glue and my scissors and my paper. And these guys are just in kind of amazed, you know. It's kind of fun because I look at what they're doing and I'm amazed because it's magic. I have no idea how they're making these incredible digital stuff. It's all behind glass. It's all, you know, you can't really touch it. So it's kind of out there and far away. But here's my stuff's right here on the table. You can pick it up, you can turn it around, you can light it differently. You can actually, it's in our world. The lineage of art is a fascinating thing. No matter what the medium, an artist has consciously or subconsciously been inspired from those who have gone before. A quick note before we get back to Kevin. 
In episode 6, designer Tammy Smith spoke with us about the influence of mid-century designers like Pat Pritchard and Tamis Keefe in her work. You can visit helloatelier.org to hear her story. Now let's get back to Kevin, who, like Tammy, has a long list of designers that he turns to for inspiration. John Hinch, Claude Coates, uh, Paul Hartley, uh, Mary Blair, of course, Ivan Durrell, um, these just these designers who created these incredible places and colors and shapes and um, they just had a they had a lot of class you know er- everything they did was so elegant and beautiful you know other illustrators that I really really like I would say like Jim Flora uh, David Weedman Alain Grier I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly but uh, from France who did a lot of children's illustrations that were um, absolutely fantastic but I think the artists that I like the most especially in these some of these illustrators I just mentioned is that they didn't just do things that were just visually like oh that's a cool way to draw a telephone or you know a, a palm tree or whatever it's like they their stuff tells stories they're, they have characters and, and things happening in them, lots of humor, lots of, uh, it gives you a little bit of a glimpse into, even though it might be a fanciful drawing, a colorful illustration, there's some reality there. There's a little message about real life in them. And I think with the illustrations that I do and the paper sculptures I do and the posters and all that, they, I try to, to put enough in there that makes it feel like there's a realness to that little world, you know, and there's a story that's being told. What I'd love to work on and what I am starting to work on now is uh, stop-motion animation. I loved watching it as a kid, you know, all those Rankin-Bass, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and those types of things. And when Nightmare Before Christmas came out, I just thought it was beautiful. Um, I'm really loving the the work that Laika is doing right now. Laika, you know, did Coraline and Box Trolls. My favorite is Box Trolls, actually, but they also did Paranorman, which was, uh, and most uh, most recently, Kubo and the Two Strings. I just love the handmade work. You know, it's something, again, it's miniatures. It's kind of everything. It's all the stuff I love. It's it's design, it's uh, it's puppetry, and it's miniatures. And it's something that you can sort of slavishly obsess over every little frame and make it perfect and then you have it recorded and it's like it lives on you know you can hit save and here it is and you can just show it over and over and over and the puppets don't wear out because they're they're preserved on film do you hear that that is the unmistakable sound of a cocktail being made And not just any cocktail, but a mehana, which is a magical concoction of two kinds of rum, Grand Marnier, and a variety of fruit juices. And while you might not find this drink at your neighborhood bar, you may well find it in a tiki bar. If you haven't been to a true, old-school Polynesian palace tiki bar filled with bamboo walls, blowfish lights, and rum, then you are missing out. Like Disneyland, walking into a tiki bar is like walking into another world. Only this one serves booze. My grandfather was a woodworker and built a lot of a lot of stuff. And when I was a kid, I made a tiki. I had learned somewhere, I think maybe reading a book about Disney, 
that they were that they would do these scenic tricks to make things look old or to make them look rustic and i was really fascinated with this technique of taking one of those coarse wire brushes and brushing with the grain on a piece of wood and it takes all the soft stuff out and leaves raised all of the harder grain and after you know sitting there for half an hour doing this it looks like driftwood it gets very soft uh, cornered and uh, smooth and it's kind of fun to touch you know it's it it just has this neat uh, look to it so i I sculpted a tiki face, I carved a tiki face, and then sat there for like three weeks as a little kid, you know, brushing the, the wood grain out to make it look like it was uh, old and had been in a jungle somewhere for a long time, in the rain and everything, and it worked. Anaheim was going through this very controversial they called it city beautification, where um, it had kind of gotten into everybody's mind that uh, these neon signs were eyesores. You know, oh, all those ugly old signs. And I love neon. Neon's amazing. And there was a lot of themed motels and uh, hotels around Disneyland that were themed to Tiki or themed to, um, you know, the Arabian Nights. And they were just taking all these themes and trashing them and turning everything beige and boring and taking all their beautiful neon signs down and replacing them with those light box signs with graphics. And for some reason at the time, in the mid-90s, this looked good to everybody. And, you know, I think nostalgia is a cyclical thing. And there must be like a 25-year gap in between something becoming outdated and old and uninteresting and sort of thrown away, and then... 20, 25 years later, everybody's looking at it going, oh man, remember that? That was so cool. So we did this tiki exhibit to kind of toot the horn for all these uh, old Polynesian South Seas themed places around Orange County that were endangered. There's a whole community of like-minded tiki file people that uh, we hooked up with and became great friends with. And uh, as they would work on their projects, say they were writing books, you know, Sven Kirsten's Book of Tiki, or uh, Jeff Beachbum Berry's Grog Log and uh, his drink guides for, um, for tropical cocktails, we would get asked to help illustrate or we'd loan part of our collection to get photographed for this project or whatever. And it just sort of built. It became like this, you know, really fun kind of group to be involved with. And we had something to add to it, you know. We could create artwork. And we have a logo that we actually um, designed for the, for the Tiki exhibit at the Anaheim Museum, which is a, a Tiki face called Mehana. Mehana is actually Anaheim spelled backwards, but it sounds like a Hawaiian word, doesn't it? So we, uh, we created this, this, uh, this tiki and uh, copyrighted it because uh, Jeff Berry, who um, was writing uh, these recipe drink books, um, had this idea to create a, a Mehana cocktail and thought it would be sort of the cocktail for uh, Orange County. So, of course, it had to have orange, you know, heavy orange flavor in it. But it had to be tropical as well. So it's kind of an orange-coconut combo, which is really pretty unique. And uh, we created a mug, uh, a tiki mug for Mehana, and it just kind of went from there. 
As Kevin opened the barn doors of his studio, we were greeted by a glittery giraffe and smiling pumpkin, gazing at us from their perch in the little red scooter. These two fellows had taken up residence in the barn after their participation in a past Anaheim Halloween parade, just one of the many local events in which Kevin and Jody participate. I think it's really important when you're an artist and you have some, something to give, like, uh, you know, you can create a poster or a logo or an ad or a costume or something, to be able to give back and, you know, use, your, use the talent that you would, you would reserve for, say, a big professional company who's paying you, but use that for something small, something that's really relevant and, and needs help, like um, you know, raising money for a library or raising you know, money for historic preservation in your own town, things like that. When Jody and I moved here, we were really interested not only in our house, we had, we'd bought a historic home, so we, we suddenly had a lot of interest in local history based on our house, <laughs> you know, but then uh, getting involved in the historical society, finding out that Anaheim had this really cool, nearly 100-year-old Halloween parade that started in the 1920s and is still going, and, um, you know, we d- we've designed parades for a living, so it was that was sort of a natural thing to get involved in. Um, with the Anaheim Halloween Parade, we just fell in love with it. It's really fun. You're only limited by money. We don't have a lot of money with uh, the Halloween Parade or a lot of these types of projects, so you have to be incredibly creative with the limited resources. So we'll build a lot of stuff out of cardboard, really cheap materials, but that's fine. You know, it just makes you think, how can I make this cardboard look really good? (laughs) You know, besides our, our job jobs, we spend a great deal of time working on projects for our community. You know, some of those are paid and some of those are not, but it's fun to live in a place where you, you can make a difference. You can make it look a little bit cooler or make it look, you know, you can do something to, to make it better. We hope you enjoyed this interview with the wonderful Kevin Kidney. To learn more about Kevin's work and to see pictures from his studio, head over to helloatelier.org. Hello Atelier is a production of the Phonicalium Media Network. An easy way to help support this program is to subscribe for free on iTunes or Google Play. And don't be shy, tell your friends about us and leave reviews on iTunes. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see extras from the podcast and where you can live a little Hello Atelier every day.